Good evening, everyone. This is your host, Sonia Cotto of the Psychedelic Healing Podcast. Tonight, I'm here with Dr. Catherine McLean, PhD. She is a pioneering neuroscientist with her expertise in setting not only just mindful meditation, but psychedelics and their effects on cognitive performance, emotional well-being, spirituality, and brain function. She has written a book, and I was very, oh, it was so moving for me to read, Midnight Water, A Psychedelic Memoir. It's a story of grief and redemption by a groundbreaking scientist, which she definitely is, and we'll explain more later. She's at the forefront of psychedelic research. She was one of the, I, is it really appropriate to say OGs? In the second, I know I say that too, but I never know, <laughs> right? Um, but you were, you really were one of the, you know, beginning, you know, especially as a female researcher in the psychedelic space that was very male dominated in in the very beginning. So you are the OG. <laughs> um, this is an amazing, compelling story of her psychedelic healing. Welcome, Dr. Catherine McLean. Thank you so much. And this is uh, normally past my bedtime. So I feel like, you know, I'm being a bit of a rebel again. You know, it's like staying up late. They don't want my kids or somewhere else. <laughs> this, is, this is how life changes, you know? Oh, yes, yes. I, I'm usually uh, getting ready for bed at this time as well. So <laughs> we're, we're out wild and crazy tonight. So congratulations on this book. It was absolutely amazing i cried very multiple times i cried i laughed a lot and i learned a lot actually so thank you for all of that um, awesome first of all it starts off with your loss you know i'm so sorry to lose your sister i cried so much just to like put it out there just at the idea because while you were you know writing about your loss and going through the process i was like devastating really feeling like oh my gosh at the loss of my sister i couldn't even imagine so um, thank you for just, you know, putting it on the pages. But that's kind of where your psychedelic healing started, but not really. Why don't you explain how you kind of. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that before my sister got sick and I saw face to face, you know, what suffering and death looked like. Before that, I was kind of just experimenting, playing, learning witnessing, sitting for other people. It was all fun and games until it wasn't. And I think that um, now there's a part of me that's kind of matured beyond that stage, but I still feel nostalgic for it. So when people are still in the fun and game stage with psychedelics, I want them to really enjoy that because it does get harder as you go. You learn more and eventually there are things that you see that you can't unsee. You can't unknow those things. So enjoy the fun times. That's my kind of recommendation for people who are just starting out and don't forget that that's also really valuable. But, you know, for me, things got very serious kind of all of a sudden. And thankfully, I had already had experience with psychedelics myself and at Hopkins. So I kind of knew exactly how to apply them in my own healing journey, which isn't to say that I knew the recipe, but I knew the ingredients. And I kind of started playing with the ingredients to figure out what kind of you know, what kind of nourishment I wanted to create for my life. People read the book, they'll realize there are a lot of ingredients. You know, it's not just one and done with psilocybin. It's not just two doses of MDMA. You know, it, you know, once you kind of get started, you realize there's a huge territory to cover. But yeah, thanks to my sister, you know, I embarked on a journey that I might not otherwise have. 
Yeah, that it was definitely um, beautiful to see that and just see the the relationships that you had. And you really got started. I mean, what kind of blew my mind and I've been kind of tapping more into is the whole meditation that you started. That was really what your research started in was meditation, correct? That is correct. And it's funny because if I had come along 10 years later, I probably w- would have gone straight into psychedelic research. But at the time, no one was really doing psychedelic research. So at even meditation was taboo. Mindfulness was taboo. Now it's like old hat. Everyone meditates. Everyone knows mindfulness. There are a million apps that you can use. But it's funny to remember and remind people that even 20 years ago, you know, things were really different. You couldn't just talk about meditation research. And so in a way, I think the meditation helped me kind of get used to the kind of criticism and, you know, kind of the discrimination against certain types of science. So then when I jumped into the psychedelic world, I was like, oh, come on, I'm used to this. Everyone's going to say, no, you can't do that. That's too woo. And then they'll eventually come around. And so now we've come around in psychedelics. It's like, yeah, that's what happens. You know, people get more open-minded. They get okay with these kind of weird topics. It's actually all over media now. It's psychedelics here, psychedelics there, you know, and that's what motivated me for this podcast, right? Because they were saying a lot of things that, um, you know, you say the fun stage and it's beautiful and fun when you're young and you're not really looking for growth and needing the growth or searching for that. But when it comes out and you're not ready for it, that's why I'm here to educate (laughs) those, to prepare for that um, setting. Um, before we dive into that, I did have a question because since you are the master meditator research person, I have been with certain people to say, talk about, okay, the psychedelics are really in to assist the meditation aspect. Like you can actually get into that transcendent space in your subconscious mind and get into that, the different levels of awareness just through meditation. And have you found that? Have you actually experienced that with meditation? Well, it's interesting. I think um, it maybe it's my personality, my brain chemistry, and my per, you know my life experiences. But in a way, meditation was always psychedelic for me, and so I think I kind of came at it from a different perspective. Of I started having experiences in meditation that I didn't have a reference for outside of psychedelics, but I could point back to psychedelics and say, "Oh, that kind of reminds me of this experience I had." on mushrooms or this one experience I had meditating was very similar to a DMT experience. And you talk to meditators and they're like, what do you, what do you mean? Like meditation is boring. It's ordinary. Nothing happens. I'm like, I don't know about you, but my brain is fireworks. So, you know, I think they've kind of fed back and forth to each other. And what I would say is that when the psychedelic experience became overwhelming, I would definitely tap back into mindfulness and the breath. And to this day, I mean, my breath is the thing that's with me all the time. So I would say if there's one thing I've learned from both, it's that you have this target, this uh, grounding vehicle with you all the time. So even when you're alone, even when you're overwhelmed, you can breathe. Um, And I know it sounds kind of simple, but it took a long time to get to that point. Oh, I realized, yes, in um, one of my uh, ketamine experiences, I realized that I don't breathe when I was trying to find yeah it was one of those just like when I was trying to find what what do I need and the message came loud and clear breathe 
And I catch myself all the time when I'm feeling anxious, I'm holding my breath all the time. So breath work is so important. So that's one thing that we try to like teach is taking deep breaths in, you know, like in the meditative space or breath work, like counting to six and holding six, then exhaling, all that kind of stuff. It's, It's crazy how meditation and breath work can work. Well, and also I found with some of the higher dose psychedelics that tend to be dissociative, breath can keep you connected to your body. I don't know if this is always true, but at least for me, sometimes if I'm so far away from my body, psychologically, spiritually, it can be harder to integrate. And so by breathing through the experience and staying connected to my body, the integration ends up being easier. And so I've kind of liked finding that kind of moderately high dose that I'm not completely, you know, abandoned the earth and my body, but I can still kind of tap back in and know that like, yeah, I am a human being. I'm going to have to figure out how to feed myself tomorrow and like go to the grocery store and like get in a car and put gasoline in my car. And it might be harder the, the day after, but like I could do this. Like I have a body. I used to actually wish for the totally transcendent experiences because I was in so much pain. And then as I got more friendly with my pain, then I kind of appreciated the moderate doses more because I said, oh, I'm, I'm no longer trying to flee my body. And I think that's maybe something that comes with time when you begin to learn that like getting away from the pain is not going to solve it. Right. Yeah, you got to feel it. <laughs> feel it to heal it. <laughs> so in, in all the medicine work that you have done, I know you did in your book kind of say that your favorite is really MDMA is kind of your go-to. But in, in your research studies that you've done and conducted, Um, you know, for those, let's say, like, do you tend to go towards, you know, all the research, okay, psilocybin for, you know, for addiction, for treatment resistant depression, or MDMA for PTSD, you know, like, those are kind of like the studies that are coming out for the legalization factor. Do you find, you know, for PTSD that it really should, or trauma should really stick with the MDMA, or is it something that each like with each medicine, what do you think it heals best? If you had to like yeah, I mean, diagnosis. It's a great question. And I would say I kind of did it backwards. So I started with high dose mushrooms and discovered that I had major, major trauma. You know, it's like, it. I think we're kind of at a, a turning point in psychology when we're finally admitting that a lot of us have really like messed up childhood even privileged people, even people who had all their basic needs met. You know, we went through, a lot of us went through a period of either neglect or outright abuse or, you know, parents who just didn't know how to manage their own emotions. And without blaming, we can see like, oh, that's there. It's in the past, but we can heal it. So in a way, I think if I had started with MDMA, I might have had an easier trajectory. But because I was more familiar with psilocybin, I kind of dove into the deep end and I almost got stuck there, honestly, because I think it was too much, too fast. And it was like, I saw everything. And so what I would say about MDMA is it ends up being, I wouldn't say, I mean, I, I've heard Rick Dalblin say it's more gentle. And I don't think it's gentle, but I do think it's not like so in your face. You know, kind of, it'll present enough that you can manage in that moment. And then you can go back to it in a few months. At the same time, you know, it happened the way it did. And so I can't second guess my own intuition there. So perhaps for some people, 
being able to see the whole terrain with mushrooms is helpful. And then you could kind of finish with MDMA once you um, are really fit and like ready for that final lesson. Um, and so I don't know, it's kind of, I can see both sides of it. Um, it's worth saying though, at Hopkins, we did not give psilocybin to people with PTSD or complex PTSD. They might've had difficult childhood memories, but that wasn't why they were showing up to us. So I would say it's an open research question still. What types of trauma are best suited for psilocybin or MDMA or something else entirely? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think the with the MDMA, because it's such an empathogen, it's like loving. I think maybe that's why it might be easier for the trauma when Rick Doblin speaks about that, just because it's more like loving and forgiving. Like I had one patient who experienced it and they like to describe it like her and her husband take it. Um, and that's when they have their deep discussions about what they're upset at each other about. And they come to such a loving agreement of it and they receive and take like, you know what I hate about you when you do this and this and this. And it's like, and he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. And they take it in like such a loving back and forth manner. So it is like, I guess a little bit softer, like our love kind of thing. Yeah, I guess in a way it softens us. So then we can meet MD. I, I think MDMA is a very, very powerful medicine. So when I think about it, I think about it as very brave and it will go into like the darkest territory, but it softens us to greet what we see there without hatred, without judgment, you know? So we end up being kinder to ourselves, kinder to like past versions of ourselves, kinder to people who might've hurt us without kind of, I think it kind of removes for a temporary period of time, it removes the need to blame or judge or determine who was good or who was bad. You can do that after the fact. You know, you can wrestle with those challenging dynamics afterward. But for a few hours, you could just see things from a very compassionate standpoint. Like, oh, we're all human. We're all imperfect. And we've all messed up at different points. Yes. Yeah. So I think that actually also might be beneficial to those that have a lot of anger inside, holding a lot of anger. And, you know, because, and that's what I try to teach my patients too. It's like, it only really hurts yourself because the person that you're angry with that brings all that anger, they have no concept of it. They're living their life. They have no right. idea that emotion is inside of you, you know, but. Well, and as you know, having read the book, anger is one of the things that I really wrestled with, eventually saw the power of, befriended. So, I think MDMA and mushrooms together are like, they go at anger from very different angles. And I think they're, it's something that we should tackle head on and stop talking around this issue of anger, but kind of headed on directly. Oh yeah, definitely. When you were talking about psilocybin and how you actually were exposed to your trauma that had been buried, right? I, that's what I want to kind of, you know, talk to our listeners about because that is always a risk, right? Where you're doing the fun and having a fun experience and lighthearted, and that's what most people do younger. Then there's also those so-called bad trips, which I personally don't think there's a such thing as a bad trip, but you know, bad set and setting, bad environment, you know, where you're at. Um, you know, how did you work through it when that came out for you? Because you weren't really expecting that to be there, and all of a sudden, this whole trauma emerged, the full memory of it. How right. are there things like, how did you go through that? 
what things did you wish you had as support or didn't have or if you could change you know what it was when it came out for you I mean yeah looking back I realized that one instinct I had which I am so thankful for is that I trusted myself to have one female friend with me in the ceremonial space and when I look back on the mushroom experiences I had I said you know I wonder why I ended up feeling safe enough to talk about this out loud to express what I was remembering it wasn't because of the male shaman in the room like he was holding the space ritually but it was because I had a female friend someone I trusted who was an equal and I could talk to that woman in the room while whoever was holding the ritual space could just do that job and you know at Hopkins of course we have two guides in the room and I was always taught that it was for different reasons, but I, what I saw emerge in my own experience was the need for someone who, whose expertise was in the ritual ceremonial aspects of the experience and someone else whose expertise was in just being a good friend, like being just a compassionate listener, someone who actually loves you. I mean, hard to find, right? But yeah. it's hard to pay for that, you know? So it's interesting that I wonder if we can come up with these models that have maybe the person who's professionally trained and a friend. And so I've asked every researcher, clinician, a private practitioner I know, is it possible for people to bring a friend in the room with them? Like, can we consider that as a, as a new model? Because without that, I probably would have stuffed it down or maybe gotten through the experience and then tried to process it on my own with a therapist afterward or something. Again, looking back, it took me a long time to trust that I could also have an experience on my own without needing anyone in the room. And it's tricky to say, uh, I think it's better to start with people there. You know, I don't really think it's a good idea for anyone to, to trip solo the first few times. But to also remember that at some point, you, you yourself are the only one who can really know how okay you are with certain memories, certain feelings. And especially with MDMA, MDMA is a great friend to have in the room. And so great to have someone around, but you could probably be by yourself for a couple hours in a safe place with someone maybe, you know, in the next room or in the same house. So just kind of, I think that idea of there being a safe, friendly home environment is something that I instinctively searched out that worked for me. And of course, you know, it's tricky in the legal medical environment. Like, how do you recreate a home environment with friends? Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, putting a bed in a clinic room, and even in our in my ketamine clinic, um, we try to make it comfortable, like you know, recliners, and you know, but it's still not your home, not your space, not your environment. Right. But trying to make it as comfortable as possible. So, did you always have like when you had the two? Was it always two therapists, or was it like one therapist? and one like sitter guide in there, or were they two licensed? Uh, so at Hop, the head guides for a, for the longest time were two clinicians. So Mary Casamano was a social worker, licensed social worker. Bill Richards was a pastoral counselor. Around the time I arrived, we needed to expand the study. So I was one of the first non-licensed, non-clinically trained head guides. But I also had all the meditation background and the self-experimentation. So in a way, I had been kind of training myself. But I still did supervision with Bill and Mary. Like they, I assisted them before I was kind of approved to guide on my own with my assistant guide. And so 
I do think the apprenticeship model works, but there was always so much team support around that if anything came up, I could ask Mary, I could ask Bill, I could ask Roland. Um, there were tons of postdocs who were clinically trained. So it wasn't like, you know, train for a couple of years and then start your own clinic. And so I kind of, I appreciate both sides. I think I appreciate that maybe having a clinical licensure model is probably the safest for now. But I know deep down that in another five to 10 years, we'll probably start seeing a lot more ordinary people being trained and that being a possibility. Well, there's so many training programs now for anybody that wants to go into integration and just psychedelic, you know, there's so much content out there to learn. Um, you know, so that being said, obviously we have the clinical model and it's not yet legalized, but right now we have a lot of states that are decriminalizing the psilocybin. So that is also why I started this podcast as well, because I have had some patients going to, you know, different countries and, you know, I had one patient administered 17 grams of psilocybin wow. in Costa Rica. Yes. So when he came to me in a pure traumatic, so much like he was just suffering a lot, um, thinking that he needed a ketamine infusion, I said, no, no, you just need integration. And it right. was planned for three weeks post. Like, what are you supposed to do for three weeks after you've had that kind of a dose? So I actually set him up and he's been doing integration because that's that's kind of more what he needs, right? Um, All right. So as far as, you know, you know, going, that being said, is those that are searching for experiences, right, where the states are decriminalizing, you know, what are some of the things that you find that's most important, especially for a woman, right, yeah. for, you know, when you're looking for, oh, I want to do a ceremony or I want to try an experience or I want to try these, you know, psychedelics, what are like the most important thing, you know, that you would tell someone? Well, I think, first of all, stay as close to home as you can. You know, make sure that it's an environment that even if you have to travel like a couple hours by car, it's a place that you can kind of get home if you needed to. Um, or you could call a friend to come pick you up. I know it's not ideal. There's all these beliefs about like interrupting an experience. But, you know, like on my meditation retreat, it would have probably been good for a friend to come pick me up. Like I made it through and I got a lot out of it, but not necessary to put yourself through that. I would suggest, you know, like I said, bring a friend, bring someone you trust, have someone else in the room that you know, so it's not all strangers. You know, certainly do your background checks on the people who are holding the space. Right now, it's starting, it's really unfortunate, but there continue to be more and more practitioners who are coming, who are being discovered as having abused people, taking advantage of people, whether sexually, emotionally, financially. You know, not all the names are known, but I think people are beginning to share that information more. You know, as a woman, and this might just be my own experience, and I certainly don't want to say that um, I would never trust a man as a practitioner, but I think I would feel the most comfortable with with women. It's not a it's not a surefire, you know, answer, but a group of women likely more safer than one practitioner alone or like you know two strangers than you in a room. So I love the community model. I love the group model. Um, that being said, I had a, I did a women's retreat in Jamaica and we still ran into lots of confusing dynamics. It was still hard for a lot of the women to feel safe. And I, and that's where I go back to just, yeah, because there were a couple, there were a couple men around, 
And that was enough to be triggering, you know, and it's hard to confirm that the entire space is exactly what every woman wants, every every single individual of the 20 women. So I learned a lot from that experience. I think I would do smaller groups and really check in with each individual. Like, what are your expectations? Are you going to be, um, is it going to make you nervous to see someone walking in the vicinity of the ceremony who, who you haven't met before? You know, just like it, there are things that you can kind of work through. And I would say at Hopkins, the reason it worked so well is because people got to know us for, you know, a couple months before their first experience. We were their friends. You know, we weren't strange doctors. We weren't, you know, one-off therapists. They really got to know us. And they could back out at any time. You know, they knew that, that they it was up to them whether they trusted us, not whether we decided they weren't ready. Um, again, hard to find in this kind of environment. But, you know, certain communities are starting to create that through decriminalization. You know, you get to know the same people over a period of months before you have a high-dose experience with them. Okay. How many therapy sessions do you usually have before you do the medicine? So at Hopkins, Mary or another clinician would interview people probably two, three, four times. Then they'd have a meeting with Roland. They'd go through the informed consent. They met the study coordinators. So there was a period of about a month of meeting lots of different medical team members and then getting medically cleared before they even had their first, you know, guided. Yeah. And then there were three or four guide sessions before the first dose. So you've got several weeks worth of getting to know lots of different team members. And if at any point you're like, I don't feel comfortable then we would delay, you know, we would make sure that someone really felt ready. And it only happened a couple of times where people got to the final prep session, that third or fourth prep session. And they said, you know, I'm just, I want to be ready, but I just don't think I am. And there was no pressure, um, which I felt was kind of nice considering that, you know, it's difficult in science to lose the data point, but we wanted to make sure that people felt really ready. Yeah. yeah so it's, it's a lot of time. And I would say that in my own life, a couple people have asked me if I would help them get ready for their first mushroom experience. And one young man in particular, I met with him over phone and Zoom for a year. At the end of that year, he had learned to meditate. He was in therapy. He was learning all of this stuff about himself. And then he still put off the mushroom experience because he's like, I've already achieved at least half of what I thought the mushrooms would give me through meditation and therapy. So I consider that to be a success story, you know, it's like put in the preparation and look at how much you can do just on your own, basically. Right. Wow. Yeah, the preparation is very important. You know, and that's one thing that's also big in our clinic is we do have the same staff all the time. It's not rotating and, you know, the patients come in and they have that trust in us. Um, You know, we are all women, but, you know, that isn't always to say like, Oh, that's the only reason that you're going to be safe. But I think that when you are in a vulnerable state with women, I think, uh, you know, it helps to be, have that support, be a woman as well in that, in that space. Um, but obviously I don't want to knock all the guys because there's so many men and therapists that are doing so, so much amazing work, you know, but I think in the trauma, you know, if you are working through trauma, especially certain things, you know, like you want to feel safe. Right. Right. So having those prep sessions, I think, is important. So do you think those guides or those different 
centers are going to have those pre-meetings? Because I feel like they just travel and you meet them when you're there. I wonder if there's a way to... Yeah, so I can, I can again, speak personally. I almost took a step into a totally new territory. I wanted to experience Iboga, and I was going to go down to Costa Rica in the winter, and there were prep sessions. I was getting to know the head practitioners, and then it kind of the... It was the last few weeks and I just felt, you know what, I'm really not ready. And I said to them, I said, the timing doesn't feel right. And I don't want to push this when it doesn't feel completely safe for me. And she was like, no problem. You know, let me know when you're ready to come back. There's no rush. We'll be here. We've got retreats happening all the time. And so, um, you know, I kind of tested my, my own model on myself and it was the first time in a while where I didn't just push through that wall and be like, I can do anything, you know, I can, I can get some meaning out of this, even if I'm afraid. I'm like, you know what? I'm just not ready. So that's okay. And, you know, that same weekend that I had already set up time away, I ended up just doing a small amount of mushroom and got so much out of it because I'd done all the prep for the Iboka. <laughs> right. And so in a way, it's like the prep, I, I keep going back to that, but it's like preparation is so important. And depending on your belief system, I believe that an experience in the future can have effects rippling back into the past. And so you're sitting here moving toward a goal in the future. And I think psychedelics help kind of guide your path toward that future goal. So if you've already set an intention, you know, it, it matters less how much or which medicine. It matters that you're already on this path that you know, your sense of who you are is moving toward that future. And so with the preparation and intention, you can get so much mileage out of even a small dose or, you know, a fun dose. It doesn't always have to be so hard. Yeah. Ah, that's beautiful. Uh, one of these days I will venture into the other. It, it's difficult in, in my space being a nurse practitioner, you know, with all these medicines like I you know, have so much experience with ketamine, but has opened the doors to all these other medicines because I have had patients that ketamine can only go so far, right? And they're still struggling. So then I kind of guide them to like, okay, here's some research, here's this, go and frolic into the universe and good luck with other medicines, you know, just kind of trying to help them, but also falling within my my guidelines, you know, of my, my sure. license, right? Um, so it's beautiful. I know as not as being not a clinician, I could take some more liberties with my book. I could really put myself out yes. there. And I felt like that was one of the best offerings I could do from my experience is say some of the more controversial things, put it in print so that, you know, doctors, nurses, researchers could learn and yeah, not have to take so those risks themselves. Exactly. No, and it's so important. That's why I was I loved the book. I actually reread it like a couple chapters here and there. Um, you know, just because it was just so it was beautiful. I mean, first of all, I want to say like your husband is amazing for like being that support and being like, okay, I'll I'll take the kids and I'll you go do your go do your uh, trips and your journeys and your you know everything that you needed. That that's amazing. Yeah, it's yeah, it is true. I've had between my mom and my husband just this amazing support system. And now that the book is out, you know, also learning which family members can walk with me and which family members are like, 
you've already gone beyond my comfort zone. Like, I don't know if I can keep walking with you. So it's really amazing to see like my mom, my brother, my husband saying like, yeah, like we're still honored to be walking with you, um, which is another thing psychedelics can teach you, right? Is like the people in your life who are, who is willing to keep going down a certain path with you and which people might be more connected to a past version of who you used to be. Oh, yes. Yeah, because that's very true. Once you start doing the medicine and the awareness comes, you can't go back to who you used to be with that knowledge, the awareness, the connection that the universe has. You know, it's a beautiful thing that um, even with, you know, just me having the ketamine experience, it's it's completely different. Um, I look forward to the other realms of the world. <laughs> Let's just say the transcended experiences, because it's true, you know, like, Ketamine and all psychedelics are so healing and so eye-opening and just letting, I think really it's just like letting go of the ego, right? Being able to just put it to the side and just seeing things for what they are and getting rid of those stories and adventures. I don't know why I said adventures. I'm not, he's going to delete that. (laughs) I'm going to be silent for a second. Okay. All right. Well, it was so amazing to have you. I know that we could continue talking and more and maybe I would actually, you know, have you come on again for another another little chat on um, on uh, more psychedelics or more, you know, as you kind of talk and as more things become legalized and we can talk more freely about things. Um, I would love to have you on since you are actually at the forefront. You started it all. So I love that. Well, I hope this is just the beginning. I have even bigger dreams and part of the intention of creating this offering through Midnight Water was to lay the foundation for some of the visions that I've had in my own life with family members and giving that to a broader community. So through birth and death and a lot of the benefits that I've experienced, it would be amazing to see that proliferate through, you know, through other communities. Yeah, that would be amazing. I think with um with death, I think, you know, when you're seeing all these me as you know firsthand right with the loss and just in the preparation but even just the family like you having to go through it with your sister and your father but then also them right them being okay with it even though they didn't uh, partake I know you offered right experience <laughs> and they were like nope <laughs> it was all you you know all you on your side doing the work but um I think it would be very beautiful for families to be able to have that closure and have that oneness and just to be able to have that healing, you know, with those psychedelics. So I look forward to the work that you're going to do because I saw little, little hints of what your, (laughs) your future plans are. So I definitely would uh, like to bring you back on when you uh, have those things come to fruition. So, well, thank you. Now we said it out loud. The intention is set. So I'm just tracking toward a future version of myself 20 years from now who knows (laughs) all right beautiful and i look forward to being there cheering you on girl power the original og (laughs) everyone it was a pleasure to have you listen to us tonight you are listening to Catherine, dr Catherine mclean and she had just released her book midnight water a psychedelic memoir it is very moving educational and really love and grief all rolled into one with a lot of psychedelics in there 
So everyone have a beautiful evening and I will see you next time. Bye. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.